It breathes, sweat. like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. I'm not sure which one of us is an outspacer spy, but someone's got a U-bomb inside them. Stay tuned to this episode and maybe you'll figure it out too. Stay tuned to the episode or stay tuned till the end of this episode? Something like that. Hey guys, it's me, Anthony Trevino here, riding shotgun to David. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, we are your personal dickheads and we're talking about Imposter, which was a Phil K. Dick short story released in 1953 and became a movie in 2002. You didn't even let Larry introduce himself. Oh, shit. <laughs> Langhorn. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, okay. Yes, so uh, Langhorn is in the house. We're uh, going to be talking about imposters, so should we... With Lieutenant Dan. Yeah. This is going to be an interesting one, because I think we were going to have a lot to say about it. Let's start with the history of the story. Um, does anybody else have any other updates or anything we want to get into? No, because by the time I do that event on Saturday, this won't even be this won't even be out by okay. next week. Yeah, so... No, I don't. I have Nothing. All right, so... I got married. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hey, Larry got married. Woo! Well, and you may have noticed that we kind of missed some of our release dates, and that's partially because Larry got married, partially because a bunch of... No, it's entirely because I got married. Okay. That shit's a pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) So, and there's Larry's endorsement for marriage. So... We are doing Imposter. This story was written in February 1953, directly after Adjustment Team and before the story James Crow. So this is the story. So think about that. He went straight from writing Adjustment Team to Imposter. No one knows what the fuck James Crow is. Yeah, I don't know what James Crow is. You said it it like we covered it at some point. (laughs) No, James P. Crow is a short story that is in the collected short stories of Philip K. Dick Volume 2, which is... The collection with Total Recall, well, Imposter, Adjustment Well, well I know that, but why'd you bookend it with that story? I'm saying those are the two, those are the stories he wrote before and after Imposter. Ah. Uh, okay. Just so, checking. Just, I didn't know, I just didn't asking know we, for some... I didn't know we had that information. Yes. Yes, we do have the information of the order of which he wrote the stories. Hmm. That is online. You can find that. So... Hmm. Um, which I brought up, I think, the last time we did a short story. But anyways, this story was first published... In Astounding Magazine in June 1953, which is a pretty quick turnaround for for our boy Philly to <laughs> go from Philly D. Philly D. Uh, and he went wrote it in February and published it in June. Sounds like a sports player for a Philadelphia sports team. We could be. What What are the Philadelphia sports teams? Who gives a shit? Move on, David. <laughs> you don't even know, do you, Anthony? No, because I don't give a fuck about sports. Well. 
There's oh, the Phillies. No. Why did I open this door? The I don't know. I, am, I, I hate that I opened this door. Okay. Anyways, if we're, I'm just I'm just trolling him. So, uh, but here's an interesting fact about the publication and the history of the story Imposter is that this was the first Philip K. Dick story to be adapted for visual media. And it was an episode in 1962 of the British short-lived British science fiction show Out of This World, hosted by Boris Karloff. Now, this show... Yeah, and here's... That's pretty cool. Here's a weird thing. They did a bunch of really famous science fiction authors' stories for it. Um, Isaac Asimov, two Isaac Asimovs, two Clifford Samak stories. And... The show is impossible to find. I tried to find this episode, Imposter, on YouTube. You could find the theme song. That was it. There is a DVD release of one of the Isaac Asimov short stories that was turned into it, but just that one. And so it's out there. It exists, but um, it's hard to find. Yeah, so so Dick fans out there, uh, get out your old VHS tapes and let's... uh yeah. See if we can tr- get that episode. Yeah, and transfer a copy up to YouTube, and we will definitely watch it and definitely cover it, and definitely shout out to whoever did it. Yeah. Yeah, we might actually do a, like a little special episode about that. Yeah, yeah we, that would be we, cool. If we can find it. So here's the thing. There is a quote that Dick had about that episode in a letter he w- he had sent to his European agent about tax forms for doing Android's dream of electric sheep. In a PS, he said, P.S., some time ago you notified me that you sold something of mine, I believe imposter, to the BBC for something like $443. Whatever happened to that? Do the mills of the gods grind that slow? Now... I want to get paid $443 for literally anything. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing. He didn't even know if it got made or not. That's one of the crazy things. Like, so the fact that we can't find this online, there is a picture from the episode that I found online, just one picture, but, um, but that's it. But it was, but there was one other adaptation that Larry and I both, um, listened to. Yeah. Larry, do you want to? Which is on YouTube. Yeah. And that's the Larry. The radio play? Yeah, exactly. How Uh, long is the radio play? Like half an hour. Oh, yeah. I guess I should have checked David's notes. I don't read David's notes ever. (laughs) Yeah. Neither do I. Don't feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I figure we're going to get the notes anyway. Why would I want to be bored twice? (laughs) All right, now. (laughs) Continue, Professor Agron. call, y'all. Continue, (laughs) Professor Agronoff. So this came from a series called Mindwebs, which was a British, or not British, excuse me, Wisconsin, very different. A Wisconsin. <gasps> How did you make that error? <laughs> because the other show was BBC, and so that's why. Uh. Okay, it was a Wisconsin public radio uh, radio drama from the seventies to the nineties, and not only did they do the imposter, but they also did the preserving machine and the builder. So we might do episodes. No, wait, is it is the story the imposter or it just imposter? It's just it's imposter, imposter which yeah. the movie gets wrong in its uh, title credits. Title credits, intro credits, whatever. When it when it it says the imposter by Philip K. Dick, and I had to take up the mantle of being that guy that says, "Um, excuse me, movie, <laughs> you're incorrect." 
So uh, maybe we're maybe we'll do episodes based on those radio dramas. I would. Um, why, I mean, why not? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, we might do that in the next year. So um, or, I could, or five. We've got like ten years of this show to do. So. Yeah. One of us will probably die before we finish the podcast. Let's just hope it's not Larry because <laughs> I can't do any of the stuff he does. Larry, I want to say on the air now, thank you for being you and doing all the real hard work on this show. Yeah. And uh, Anthony, I want to say to you, thank you for being a friend. <laughs> You're a pal and a confidant. Thanks. All Thanks. right. I can't I feel like that was facetious, but I'll take it. Oh, yeah. I was full of feces. Okay. <laughs> so, The Imposter, not only was it published in Astounding, but it was also collected 20 times in various collection sci-fi collections and it was in great science fiction of the 20th century and the introduction to that story to to it in this in um, great science fiction of the 20th century said aliens come in all shapes and sizes intentions in science fiction but what if they look like us the shape changer is a particularly frightening and dangerous creature when he is present it becomes impossible to trust anyone even friends or members of the family in this sense of increased vulnerability is what makes Mr. Dick's story so terrifying. It's worth noting he wrote it at the height of the McCarthyist period in the United States. Am I the only one that thinks the word shape changer is strange? Why don't you just say shapeshifter? Yeah, yeah. it's a little, it's a little weird. It's a little off-putting. A little, yeah, a little odd. Okay. So that's the history of this story. Um, I think, you know, the, it, the fact that it was collected 20 times just does really show like kind of the staying power of it for a short story. So Larry, why don't you tell us what happens in Impossible? Oh shit. Is it time for what, David? The, the story, story breakdown. All right, Larry. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> So, Imposter uh, is a story. Cool, cool. <laughs> Fucking knocking it out of the park. Yeah. I'm gonna start, I'm, I'm, I wanted to start big. All right. So, dude wakes up and he's like, work sucks. and uh, <laughs> As dick characters do. And uh, we should go to the woods. And wife's like, you know, the woods burned down, which is totally unrelated to anything that's going to happen really soon. <laughs> and he's like, yo, them fucking woods. <laughs> and then he gets ready to go to work. He gets into his uh, his little, uh, what do they call it? Cannon fucking car? What is it called? The thingy? The shoot thing? Yeah. The I, I don't know. Some fast-moving bullet car. With space his, car. Just say yeah, space, space car. Yeah, space car with his buddy. And uh, his buddy is like, hey, he puts a gun to him, and he's like, well, we're going to have to kill you now. The shoot bug. The, the shoot, shoot bug. That, that's the shoot bug, yeah. Wait, that's the shoot bug? Yeah, that's the shoot bug. Okay. Because on the second page, there's a line where he says, here come, here, here the bug comes. So, Larry, can okay. I interrupt your story breakdown momentarily? I uh, guess. The gun doesn't come out until Major Peterson. Major Pe- Peterson? Major Peters. Yeah, I don't really give a shit. Okay. Well, All it's right, a character so, in the book, so... So, he, his buddy's like, yay, we're gonna kill you. And uh, Major Peterson is Peters. also there. Whatever. The major is there, and he's like, hey, you don't know me, but we're going to kill you. And he's like, oh, this sucks. And they're like, no, but you're a robot, so robots don't care, and we're scared of you a little bit, but we're, we've got guns, and you don't, so we're going to shoot you. 
He's like, what? Don't shoot me. I'm, 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 dude. I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the real guy. And uh, they're oh like, God, no, you're not. Are all along. Yeah, you, you're a robot. And they're like, then we're gonna take you to the backside of the moon, and uh, they're gonna pop <laughs> that. They're gonna pop that bomb out of you that's in your chest. Put one and, in the back of your head, Goodfellas style, on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, and everything will be good. Uh, leave the body, take the cannoli, kind of thing. Leave uh, the body. Take those bougie moon rocks. Take those bougie moon rocks. <laughs> All right. So anyway, they uh, they go into the moon, and then he's like, "I got to get out of this. My wife will help me, or something." And he's like, "Oh, I've got a plan. Burp, burp. I'm a robot. I blow up in five seconds." And they're like, "Oh shit! Let's jump out of the car." And so they jump out of the space bug, and uh, and he's like, "All right, I'm I'm safe. I'm taking the my ride back to the." Uh, house i'm gonna pick up my wife and we'll figure it out from there because there's no way i'm a robot and uh, no way and he, then he goes to his house but wife's there and the cops are there the friends there all the you know shit goes sideways so he has to hide and he jumps through some bushes and he's like oh, okay what's my next plan my next plan is to find the robot the real robot and that way i can have evidence that i'm not the robot all right, so he goes and then goes to the woods where, of course, everything burned down for no reason, and he deducts that it's there. So, yes, the spaceship's there. His friend shows up with a bunch of soldiers, and they're like, well, we're going to kill you now. And he's like, no, but the robot. And they're like, yeah, but we have to kill you. No, but the robot. So they look at the robot, and then they're like, oh, shit, it is a robot. And you're the real guy. And he's like, yep. He lights a cigarette and he's like, yes, gentlemen. I clearly am the real me. And then one soldier's like, Spencer, I'll, um. But that, that, wait, that's not a bomb. That's a knife. You stabbed him and put him here. And he's like, what? And then he blows up. And you can see it. The end. All the way. To Alpha Centauri. From Alpha Centauri. Yeah. Yeah, apparently. It It was a big bomb. Yeah. You know we can only see Alpha Centauri in the Southern Hemisphere, I'm just saying. But, you know, whatever. Anyways. Yeah, push up your nerd glasses on that one. <laughs> can you stand up with your books so I can knock them out of your hand, please? <laughs> All right. Anyway, anywho. Um, yeah, that's Imposter. Uh, what did PKD say on Imposter? He said, here was my first story on the topic of am I human or am I programmed to believe I am human? When you consider I wrote this back in 1953, it it was, if I may say so, a pretty damn good new idea in SF. Of course, by now I've done it to death, but the theme no shit. <laughs> <laughs> but the theme still preoccupies me. It's an important theme because it forces us to ask what is a human and what isn't. I am shocked that that's PKD's mindset. Right. Right. Fucking shocking. Woo! Yeah, I know. Well, it read but, it read as allegory to communism up until the end. Yeah, you know, it read it read entirely as an allegory for the uh, for the uh, Red Scare or whatever you want to call it, and the McCarthyism, and and yeah, yeah, and certainly the great science fiction stories of the 20th century did point that out, and and I think, um, but it, but it totally it, the very end of the story sort of wipes all that away by making, proving by. You know, adding proof that he is actually a, a, a robot. robot. A robot. Yeah. Now, um, our our buddy uh, Evan Lampy did 
uh, mention in his review, he said, what is troubling about in Imposter is the realization that Olam is both capable of massive destruction, yet could be morally human. He acts with many of the characteristics of humanity, a desire for self-preservation, concern for his wife, concern for his community through working on a project. So, you know, this premise, you know, the idea of the transhuman, like, he's not human, he is a bomb, he is a robot, but he he believes that he's human and he has all these things. So does that morally give him a right to exist? And Boy, and, that Evan Lampy, yeah. smart yeah, but guy. Not, not if he's got a giant bomb inside of him. Well, that's just it. Um, he doesn't know that he has a bomb inside of him. So I think that that is some of the kind of the moral questions that come up in the story. And I yeah. think that is one of the, the interesting things. Um, we can talk more about that in our overall feelings of the story. But I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the story is I like all the out of date sci-fi stuff is great. Right. I like, I like that the, uh, alpha Centaurians are called outspacers, which is just, it's a great name. I it's like a it. great name. I love out. I like the needle ships, the needle ships is it better than the, the bugs, the lunar ticks. Or was it the lunatics? In uh, Time Out of Julian? Yeah. yeah. It was pretty corny. Um, but here you've got also, like, and so what I think it was is the cars are bugs, and if they're armored, then they're the shoot bugs. <laughs> no, I think they they shoot. They're, like, uh, super fast moving. Yeah, yeah, they could be, yeah. So there's all kinds of really fun, like, sci-fi, like, out-of-date stuff in this story. And I really uh, dug all of that as well. And just the idea of a U-bomb and, and, and a robot, um, I, I think the out-of-date stuff is kind of one of the things that makes the story kind of charming. Yeah. I, I think. Um, it's not a super long story. It's very one-note, you know. Yeah, but, it's, a, it's a good short story in that sense. Yeah. And I think if you consider that it's right after Adjustment Team, this is such a better story. Than adjustment team. Um, yeah, it's a definitely a more complete story. Sure, shit, no talking dogs in it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. We're um, talking bees. Bzz, bzz, the barrier, <laughs> bringing it back. Well, there is a there is the uh, domes in here. The the, the um, I feel like somebody else wrote a book much many years later about domes. <laughs> yeah. Well, in here in this book, there's the Westinghouse Labs built. The domes, the bubbles that pr- the protect bubbles, and I thought that was interesting that Westinghouse built them. Yeah, <laughs> so not Edison. Yeah, and so and I think that when we get to the film, there they kind of briefly mention the protect bubbles, but I think you see you see them more than they talk about them. Right, right. But the 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 bubbles and the it's interesting because if you think about the time that it was written in 1953. And the threat of nuclear warfare and all that, you know, that's it's kind of kind of pretty cool. Are there any like moments that you guys really dug of the actual prose and the writing that you guys want to point out? I I didn't no. <laughs> I actually really like uh, one of the last paragraphs in here when Nelson is kind of looking at the the body they f- they find. Yeah, and uh, it goes. Nelson stood up. He was holding on to the metal object. His face was blank with terror. It was a metal knife, an outspace needle knife, covered with blood. This killed him, Nelson whispered. My friend was killed with this. 
He looked at Olam. You killed him with this and left him beside the ship. If that's a really sad moment, in my opinion, is for this guy to realize that his friend was murdered by a robot. Right. Which is a nice little character moment, I but thought. But I, I don't think there's enough... It, it, the the substance is there, but the, the language doesn't really uh, bear it out. You know what I mean? Well, the language it, doesn't always have to. I can yeah. take this moment and be immersed in it without it being kind of prosy. Right. But, uh, you know, as a, as a writer, if you want to convey that, you would put it in the in the text. And I don't think he was tr- trying to make it... It's it's very... Um, well, what's the word for it? Diplomatic or, or is it uh, very stark, the way he tells that part of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of... If you want to convey the emotion, you would be like... He would have a tear in his eye. You know, not nothing that dramatic or... But some language that would give it some emotion. Right. Well, and I, I do think that there is emotional depth that PKD is dropping here in little parts of the story. If you, th- if, if you think about what um, Evan was saying, there's a, there's a part here where Peters says the robot would be unaware that he was not the real Spencer Olam, Spencer Olam. He would become Olam in mind as well as body. He was given an artificial memory system, false recall. He would look like him, have his memories, his thoughts, his interests, perform his job. There would be one difference. Inside the robot is a U-bomb, ready to explode at the trigger phase. So I think the idea and the whole concept of, like, this robot doesn't know, and the idea that any of us could be programmed in this world to think that we're real, but we're not, is at the heart of so much of the PKD paranoia. I think that that, that kind of line kind of hinges on, it, it sets up so many ideas that PKD repeats over and over and over again. I just really, I don't give a fuck about the robot. <laughs> you just, you just don't even care. You just like, like if the robot, you're a robot with a bomb. If I find that out, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Right. Right. But that you don't feel any, your kind artificial of... humanity means nothing to me. You're a robot. Okay, well... Just yeah, it's a, the same problem. It's the problem I had with uh, the movie Ex Machina and that uh, the Westworld TV show. I just don't care about the robots. Yeah, but what if, if you're in the situation where you find out suddenly, after your whole life, or what you think is your whole life, you are not what you thought you were? I like, would say, personally... I would be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I would say you probably have to do it better with the language and make me really care about the robot more. Yeah, you have to do a lot of work for me to care about a fucking toaster. <laughs> Jeez. No heart, you guys. All right, well. No heart for what? For, the, for a robot? For with a, robot. a bomb inside of it? That's why I care more about Nelson in this story. Well, true, but, okay, well, I'm just saying... David, if I found out you were a robot with a bomb inside of you, I'd be fucking super bummed. Who's gonna do all the boring chapters of the of Nightmare City? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, yes, but here's the thing. If you, yourself, comes to that realization, I think that's what a lot of the story plays with. And I think that that's good, because it tells a story from Spence's point of view, and in that regard, I think that's what's kind of neat about the story. Right. All right, so... There was one other prose bit that we wanted to talk about. It was at the end of one of the pages. Along the street, oh. a shoot bug came. It went on. The line. Okay, now that we, we've established what a shoot bug is, 
But it's still that <laughs> that paragraph has no reason to be in there at all. World building, my man. <laughs> I don't see the humor here. Yeah. What's yeah. funny about this? Well, we were just talking about how it was just so random that there was just this a th- whole paragraph dedicated to something that doesn't have any bearing on the story. In a PKD whatsoever. story? I'm yeah. shocked. Well, and I think he was just trying to show that uh, time passed or something. I don't know. I mean, that's common in almost any story. I mean, Vic, Vic peeling potatoes or whatever he was doing, bagging potatoes, was way more interesting than that. Oh, Get the just... fuck out of here. <laughs> time out of joint? Oh, well. Oh, my God. Let's watch this guy fucking pitter-patter around his grocery store for 20 pages. Cool, bro. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, it was two pages, but still. It felt like forever. <laughs> Okay. So did that paragraph. I'm sorry, Larry. What are you talking about? What? Exactly. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, I don't really have much else to say about the story, Imposter. I think... Well, David, how many Alpha Centaurians would you give it? um, Implanted... I would give it three and a half implanted U-bombs out of five. I'd give it three robots out of five. It's a solid little story with a cool punchline. I like the downer ending, but other than that... I'll give it three Nelsons. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that is the short story, Imposter, which could have just remained a short story, a radio play, a forgotten episode of a British TV show, but then came Dimension Films. And when I first saw the opening credits and it said Dimension Films, I went, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, for those of you who don't know, Dimension Films is the action movie exploitation arm of the Bob and Harvey Weinstein Miramax Empire that at the time was not disgraced um, in the same sense anyways. But Dimension at that time was producing sci-fi movies, action movies, horror movies. Um, Yeah, just any genre film they were thrown out. Now... Harvey Weinstein was considered an executive producer on this film. However, it is well known that his brother Bob was kind of more in charge of the Dimension line. And there's all kinds of hilarious stories about his direct-to-video sequels to different horror movies. Where he would just buy scripts that had nothing to do with it and be like, We're going to make this a Hellraiser picture! (laughs) It's not a Hellraiser movie. doesn't matter. Has a detective. It's now a Hellraiser movie. Right. Right. Which is how they just keep the rights to the Hellraiser franchise. Right. So, um, somewhere in the late 90s, they were developing a science fiction anthology movie. And they were, it was going to be the showcase for these kind of hot directors to make, um, short science fiction movies that would be compiled into one. And one of those three parts was going to be Guillermo del Toro's Mimic. And I don't know who Guillermo del Toro is. Guillermo del Toro? Toro, David. Del Toro. Fuck is Guillermo del Toro? Del Toro. Sorry. (laughs) Anyways, um, which eventually did get made into a... Stickler. Did get made into a full feature film um, starring Mira Servino called Mimic. Now, one of the other three parts was supposed to be Imposter, which was directed by Gary Felder, who at the time had some notoriety for an indie movie he made called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. Have you guys seen that movie? 
Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good movie. Pretty it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's a good, like, noir movie. And he also went on to make a kind of serial killer thriller James Patterson adaptation called Kiss the Girls, which is actually pretty good. It's With, a, with it's the a, gun through the milk money shot. Yeah. I always get it confused with Along Came a Spider. Which, yeah. Well, because they were both Alex Cross. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Are you Stories. telling me Morgan Freeman is the OG Alex Cross? Yes. He is the OG oh, shit. Alex Cross. Mind blown. Um, yeah, and Kiss the Girls is actually... Kiss the Girls along came a spider before James Patterson kind of got lazy and started hiring other people to write his novels for him. Are actually You could hire us. Anthony and David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. James, <laughs> give us a call. Um, don't be offended when I say that those were actually pretty good <laughs> back in the day. I'll write the shit out of some Alex Cross. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, yeah, so Gary Felder had gotten attention for doing uh, things to do in Denver when you're dead. And so with his screenwriting partner, Scott Rosenberg, they were brought on. And Rosenberg, um, his film credits include um, High Fidelity, Disturbing Behavior, Con Air. <laughs> what? Whoa. I don't what? see what? what's Why so he funny about Con Air, David. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, that is that good, movie, good two thirds of a movie right there. That movie has a character named Cyrus the Goddamn Virus, played by John Malkovich. Put right. the bunny back in the box. I love Conair. In the Rock. Yeah. So, anyways, they th- this was they were supposed to do Imposter as a forty minute piece as a part of this sci fi anthology film, but I think when Mimic started to kind of balloon and get into something that they thought was gonna be a good standalone movie and they saw some of the the dailies for Imposter, they decided to split them up and make them into their own movie. So that meant that after they had filmed forty minutes of Imposter or what was edited into forty minutes, they had to go back, rewrite the entire movie and add time to flesh it out into a full movie. So wait, there's there was Mimic and there was Imposter. What was the other movie? It was called, like, Alien Love Triangle or something. A- yeah, Alien Nurses on the Moon or something. <laughs> it was something... Re- Are you sure it just wasn't Species? If you look... Three. Uh, Larry has IMDb in front of him, so he might be able to tell us if he looks up trivia for the movie. It was... I know it was something Alien Triangle, so... Alien Love Triangle? Something. It was an alien stole my I think it's wife. The top one of the an anthology of sexy alien cuckolding. Alien love triangle. Acknowledge my sexy joke, David. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am ignoring your <laughs> sexy joke. Anyway, alien love triangle. Okay, so but for whatever reason, Mimic came out really quickly, and Imposter took years for them to finish. There was an original screenplay by David Toohey, who was a screenwriter who um, Larry and I, I know, really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the writer-director of Pitch Black, Perfect Getaway, Below, um, which are all movies we really... Some really enjoy. good movies. Yeah, but he also was just a screenwriter on movies like The Fugitive and... So cool, so. I don't like Pitch Black or anything. Uh, don't include me. Okay. Prick. Well, <laughs> we... See, we watched Imposter together and we talked about it. It's this. true. It's yeah. true. You showed up late, so I watched it alone. Yeah, with my headphones in. Yeah, so we. So, so I didn't have to listen to you eat and talk through the movie. All right. Well, anyways, that's then you would know that we were David Tui fans, 
And that's we would know fair. that you're a David Toohey fan. That's fair. We had that conversation. Anyways, I am a big David Toohey fan, and I have a feeling, a belief, I can't prove this, that there is a David Toohey script for Imposter out there that's actually rock solid. And I think that if David Toohey had directed this and not Gary Felder, we would have a much better Imposter. What other movies have, has Gary Felder directed? Well, we just discussed that. Kiss the Girls, Things oh, We Do in duh. Denver. All right. Yeah. yeah. All right. And uh, he did a thriller called Don't Say a Word around the same time with uh, Michael Douglas. And nowadays he does uh, TV episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So apparently Imposter uh, was enough to shellack his career. It's, it could have been. Anyways, Gary Felder is the director. They, you know, and that's it. Like... As far as the production goes, there's definitely a rocky history. Um, I know Gary Sinise had to be brought on as a producer to get him back to film more scenes. So when they fleshed it all out after, I mean, it was a long time after. I didn't really notice any continuity differences between any of the scenes. But no, I, I didn't either. But I do know that the Gary Shalhoub, like... What? Gary Shalhoub? <laughs> Tony Shalhoub. Holy <laughs> Fuck, David. Tony Shalhoub, sorry. Man, Gary Shalhoub and Tony Sinise. <laughs> nighttime, nighttime on ABC. <laughs> Fuck. So, the Tony Shalhoub, Gary Sinise, like, walk and talk scene that we That's both, a good scene. Yeah, we like that scene. I know that was a part of the original. There was, at one point, the DVD had, the, the, the DVD bonuses had the 40-minute cut. And so, when I first saw it on DVD. I did watch the 40-minute cut, and it was much better. I wonder if hmm. all the padding is mostly karate action scenes. All the um, the scenes... Is it in the, all the Mackay Pfeiffer stuff? All the Mackay Pfeiffer stuff is in the padding. Oh, so, all the bullshit, like, we live in the dead zone. Yeah. yeah. Resistance, blah, 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 stuff all that, that I'm so stuff. fucking a, tired of seeing. I had a feeling you would hate all that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. You're right. I hated it a lot. I hated it so much that I took my headphones out, looked over at my buddy Brandon, and said, why? Why again? Who cares? Shout out and to he's Brandon. Like, what the fuck are you watching? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, all that stuff, the padding, all that stuff with uh, we got to get in or I'm going to get in and do the scan of my body to find out, like, all that was all added stuff. We got to remove your, uh, what are they called, a SIM card? Yeah. Yeah, and all that. So, Not as cool as uh, Tom Cruise getting his eyes plucked out yes. by more robots. It was definitely not as cool. And there was, and, and certainly I did look at Larry during while we were watching this and say, I like this scene much better in Minority Report. It's true. Yeah. I did too. Yeah. And not that, I mean, it's not necessarily that it's absolutely a better movie, Minority Report, because Minority Report had all the kinds of problems with the length and all that. But they just executed a lot of the same things. It's Much still the better. best Lexus commercial I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good Lexus commercial. So, um, so yeah, Imposter had all these... Sorry, motorcycle. Pause for rad dude right on a motorcycle. So, Imposter had all these um, crazy production issues. So, and, uh, real quick. The third movie of that trilogy, which was Alien Love Triangle was directed by Danny Boyle huh? and starred Kenneth Branagh, Alice Connor, and Courtney Cox, and Heather Graham. I would watch that. I would watch that. It was not released till 2008. It's a, it's a short. It, it, it retained its 40-minute, I guess, or half-hour 
however long it was Because they took a look at how Imposter turned out and were like, let's just leave it for you. Yeah, they put it on the shelf for well, a long time. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what Dimension Films was doing with science fiction at the time. Because in 2002, they, they well, what the Weinsteins were doing a lot back then was buying up movies that they weren't quite sure what to do to release, especially like in the wake of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, they bought a ton of Kung Fu movies and they would dub them into English, but then they would let them sit on the shelf, like Shaolin Soccer, for example, sat on the shelf for two years right. before it got released here. So if you were like me, who like collected Kung Fu movies, you already got the import DVD. You'd already seen it. Hero was the same thing. But that particular year, 2002, they had three science fiction movies. They Imposter was the first one they released in the theater. And what they did with these movies is they would release them in 20 theaters, 30 theaters. And Imposter was the last one that got a full release. Now, I admit, I saw Imposter in the theater. I was already a PKD fan. In fact, this copy of my book that I'm holding right here, I reread Imposter right before I went to see it in the theater in January of 2002. I was one of, like, four people in the theater that day. It was supposed, like, all the trailers leading up to it said that it was going to be released on Christmas Day. It did not come out on Christmas Day. It did not come out until January. It got delayed. And it did so bad that two movies that they had in the pipeline already, which was Cypher, which was uh, our, which is one of my dick-like suggestions already on this podcast. And a decent movie. Yes. And Equilibrium were both shelved because of how poorly Imposter did at the th- in the theater. So because of that, Equil- Equilibrium ended up getting released in, like, ten cities. San Diego happened to be one of them, so I did go to see Equilibrium in the theater. However... Do you think Christian Bale threw a hissy fit about it? He might have. And he's like, it doesn't matter. I'm oh, going to be man, Dick I Cheney hope later. So. I yeah. hope so. And Cypher didn't even get released in as many theaters as Equilibrium. It basically got dumped and lost. And that was from the director of so, Cube. So the gross uh, for... For Imposter was six million dollars. Oh, off of a that hurts. Estimated forty million dollar budget. That is painful. I have nothing to do with that movie. Do we know what the box office? Can you look at the box office for Equilibrium? Uh, Sure. Because and Cipher just didn't even. That was the first movie I saw Gunkata in. I think that was the first movie Gunkata was in, right? Yeah, I think that was kind of the birthplace of Gunkata. And then that that director did a um, weird vampire movie called Ultraviolet. Ultra yeah, yeah, I skipped it. I watched that one in the theater. It was terrible. Yeah, it was not as good as Equilibrium. And well, it was Equilibrium with vampires. Yeah, basically. You get not very good vampire. Daybreakers tried to be kind of a sci-fi vampire movie. Yeah, I actually, I liked that one. Yeah, I like parts of it. Yeah. Daybreakers had its money. I like all the stuff with Sam Neill. So what was the budget and the box office take for Equilibrium? Okay, Equilibrium had a $20 million budget, and its gross in the U.S. was $1,200,000. Ouch. Owie. World, yeah. Worldwide gross was $5 million. Wowee. That's rough. You, you guys know what other movie Dimension was Films a, took to space. But again, uh, it, Equilibrium was on a limited release, whereas Imposter was in wide release. 
So I mean, know, still. that's a difference between ten theaters or twenty theaters and you know two thousand theaters. So yeah, an equilibrium. A difference. They literally just wanted it to go out on video, and that's why they just released it in a couple cities. And Imposter, they actually had an ad campaign. They did a whole thing. They did try to release it wide. So. I think, but it is very clear that it was Imposter was the reason why these other two movies got shit-canned. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, so that's kind of the unfortunate thing about Imposter because I would say of the three movies, Cypher is the best movie of the three. Yeah, yeah. I would say Equilibrium was my favorite of the three because I... I I actually, yeah, I... I agree with you. Okay. I've only seen Equilibrium in Imposter, so I can't speak on Cypher. Mm. Yeah, you should see Cypher. You'd like it. But um, if I were to say I really liked a Dimension Films movie set in space, Hellraiser Bloodlines in space. That's yeah, true. I kind of like that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Saw that also theater. starring Adam Scott, little baby Adam Scott. Right? Yeah. Right. So, um, but it is interesting to see the impact that Imposter had. Like, they... Sat on it for years, they forced it to be a longer movie, and then they were, like, pissed off that it didn't do well. Um, and then shit-canned two other movies because of their mistakes. Because that's how the movie industry works. Yeah. So just, it's just an interesting thing. Well, about- Larry, it's everyone else's fault when a movie right. fails. It's right. not the production studio's fault. Yeah. So... Uh, writer, director. So let's talk about the cast for a minute because this is a pretty a pretty good cast. Considering how it's a movie that kind of died, and <laughs> uh, the cast is good. Gary Sinise in the lead Sucks. role, <laughs> and, and <laughs> Carrie Shalhoub. <laughs> uh, Tony Shalhoub is um, in a small role. Madeline Stowe as Spencer Olam's wife, Maya Olam. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio, who we all like. Mikkel Pfeiffer. Is M- that his Mackay name? Mackay Mackay. Mackay Pfeiffer. David, you're no Mackay. longer allowed to say names on this podcast. <laughs> all right. Well, so we're... <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. So we got... The actors um, are, are pretty good. Nobody... <sighs> it's a pretty solid cast for a movie like this yeah 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 and i think tony shalhoub and gary sinise especially in that one scene where they're kind of walking and talking that is a great scene it's very well acted yeah it would have made that final scene when nelson realizes his friend's dead really good had they not killed tony shalhoub in the first 25 fucking minutes of this movie well remember it was a 40 minute movie before so yeah so that so you're gonna pat it with a bunch of kung fu and dumb resistance B story? Oh, I'm not. I'm not excusing it. In okay, any way. I'm just checking, Larry. I want. I want to make sure I don't need to defend myself to you again. But Tony Shalhoub actually also his his eyes do really. He does really great eye acting. I with, like Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, he's really good in the scene where uh, Spencer Olam's like all like wired up and on. When trial. they're interrogating him. Yeah, yeah, I thought Tony Shalhoub was great in that scene. He was definitely better than Gary Sinise was in that scene. Which yeah. Was what was your guys' problem with Gary Sinise? It's a little over the top, but he has to play up that he's tr- that angle. He's trying uh, to convince them un- that he's a robot. Uncomfortably bad, and it's not Gary Sinise's fault. Yeah. It's just the way it was shot and the lighting and the, the, the sets. And it's the, not great. The set design everything, and the lighting is not great. Everything around Gary Sinise was terrible. 
Yeah, I don't have a huge problem with Gary Sinise. I actually like Gary Sinise as an actor. I like his Of Mice and Men. I liked him in The Stand. So I, I love him in Forrest Gump. Yeah, he's fine in Forrest Gump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like he also has the Lieutenant Dan Band. Yeah, I definitely will not go see his band. <laughs> um, not my style of music. But that's... No, he's, he's a good actor. I just don't think he's a leading man type actor. Before we get into all the things that are my problems with it, I know you're a big fan of Vincent D'Onofrio. I do uh, like Vincent D'Onofrio. So we were kind of hit or miss on his performance in this movie. I think he has some good moments, but it's he's not as when you especially it's too big. It's too, big. It's too over the top. It's a lot of yelling. Yeah, and it's and it's not that he can't do that and do it well because certainly we've seen it as Kingpin in mm-hmm. Daredevil. He's over the top, but it works. But it's also balanced with a lot of these quiet moments of rage with that yeah. with with that character. Whereas in this film, it's just Vincent D'Onofrio yelling a bunch, which right. I, I would be kind of a hypocrite if I said I didn't enjoy Vincent D'Onofrio being angry and yelling as much as I enjoy Michael Shannon being crazy. Right. <laughs> so, but but I get it. It, it. He feels like a stock villain. Well, he's playing the yeah. exact same role that Colin Farrell played. Oh in, yeah, in Minority Report. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I would say Colin Farrell played it a little bit better with a little bit more nuance. subtlety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that that's the director's fault and not yeah, D'Onofrio's not, not fault. D'Onofrio's fault. Yeah, exactly. We're yeah. gonna pile a lot of blame on the director on this one. Oh, here it comes. <laughs> let's, dump, let's get that dump truck backed up um, because our problem with the movie, at least Larry and I who watched it together. Fuck off. (laughs) Our problem with the movie was entirely the sets, the lighting, the, like, just... The the acting choices, or the director's acting choices. The editing, the slow-mo, the the weird... Yeah, they... I I think what they were going for is a weird passage of time because they they hit him with that drug before they interrogate him. But the transitions between scenes when it's that weird slow-mo makes it feel like a made-for-TV movie. Right. It's super strange and it doesn't add anything to it other than being kind of off-putting and confusing. Yeah. It's very very cheesily done. It's very TV, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, this cinematographer, we looked him up, and he went on to win Oscars and do lots of really good movies, including... Yeah, he's done tons of good movies, so we can't blame the cinematographer. Yeah. I mean, you kind of can. You can, because this movie looks like dog shit, but... Okay, whoa, dog shit? Yes. It looks terrible. I liked it. I liked some of it better than I enjoyed those blown-out scenes in Minority Report. Report. Uh, That's like comparing... Shit with shit. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. True that. I'm not... It's just... I think, at least in Minority Report, I could see what was happening. And here, there was a lot of... Well, how else are you going to see the ads? Right. Yeah, right. You never would have bought your Lexus if you hadn't watched Minority Report, David. (laughs) There's a lot of... There's just a lot of darkness that obscured what was happening. There was a lot... It just looked cheap. Yeah, the action scenes were not shot well. And the the weird slow mo that just like kind of gave it a soap opera kind of feel at mm-hmm. times. It's just I think the problem with the movie and watching it again because the last time I watched it, I think I just kind of went with the story and I was just excited that it was pretty faithful to the, to the story. Yeah, and the forty minute version is just basically exactly the the story, right? And so I think for me watching it this time, I was just like, oh. God, it looks 
ugly. It looks bad. <laughs> it just looks bad. And it's not it's not even the dated uh CGI or anything like that. It's the actual the way it was shot. Yeah. Cuz I can deal with the with the dated and the low budget CGI and just kind of the same way that I like you yeah, know, the fact that, that the story has news machines in it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like they used the lawnmower man technology to do their CGI. <laughs> oh, lawnmower man. man or good. or all the, the CGI from Spawn when Spawn goes to hell. <laughs> yeah. So bad. <laughs> so, uh, Anthony. David. You have some notes here. Oh, I, I mean... I broke it down by scene. I don't know if these qualify as notes at this point. I just wanted to make sure if we didn't, if we were talking about the story, we didn't miss anything. And no one, we don't need to go to the story beat by beat, do we? No. God, no. No. Um, There's not a lot of beats to hit in it. Yeah. Um, don't wait on me on these notes, you guys, please. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, what I mean, what do we want to go around and just do, like, a general review of this movie, like we always do. Yeah. I mean... And then we can talk about what we would do differently? Yeah, let's talk about... Well... I don't know. Let's talk about the part you didn't like, Anthony. Which part? The Mackay Pfeiffer stuff. Which just... It literally serves no purpose. Did you think it was too... Too easy of a route to take with the Outland stuff, and well, this is one of the things I hated. I hated that B plot in Blade Runner twenty forty nine just as much as I hated it here. Mm-hmm. It's just a vehicle to get the main character to another spot of the story. Right. It serves no other purpose. Well, we weren't really privy to what was going on with the people that live in the dead. They call it the dead zone. Dead zone. Yeah. And if you can't. Ugh, God, so dumb. Um, <laughs> and they're there to—they're there to provide a service, which is to remove his SIM card because he's on the outskirts of town, and we don't mess around here. Yeah. Um, I think his relationship with Mackay, uh, Gary Sinise's relationship with Mackay Pfeiffer's character was really well done. Sure, but um, it, it doesn't come until too late in the movie for yeah, me to give it's, a shit. It's very true. It's very true. I like the, the the doctor who cuts his SIM card out has a line that's something to the effect of, well, if we had that, I wouldn't be, or, you know, I wouldn't have to be a doctor, which right. I thought was kind of a cool line. Um, or what did she say? She says, oh, if we had that, I'd be a real doctor. Something like that. Yeah, which I thought was kind of neat. But, yeah, that B story just doesn't do anything other than to... Fu- Whoa. Hi, David. <laughs> other than to pad out the story. Well, right? other than pad to pad out, out the, the story, and, and the only other purpose it serves is to get Olam... From outside the city, back inside the city. That's it. It's true. That that's the only reason it's because, there. Because running time. Be- yeah, because run time, and because well, how are we going to get him back inside the city? Oh, we'll have him hook up with you know the the unmentionables that live outside the dome. Right. Dumb. <laughs> so I just it didn't do anything for me. I like Mackay Pfeiffer, but it's not a. Yeah, I could watch him all day. It's not a. Uh, it did nothing for me. And there's so much padding in here, you know, all the, all the obligatory fight scenes and all them running around the medical complex and getting shot at. They, they, there is a lot of running around in industrial looking zones, getting shot at. Yeah. And then on to another all scene. Lit, of, really, really poorly lit. And <laughs> cut with scenes of Vincent D'Onofrio walking around with a group of soldiers saying, yelling into his phone about where he is. Mm-hmm. Not just soldiers. Soldiers wearing the same helmets from Starship Troopers. Starship, true. yeah, he's got it's his true. Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers, a better movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, they actually use stock footage from Starship Troopers in this movie, 
and, and during the opening voiceover, which, by the way, I actually thought, you know, those opening voiceovers are just, like, kind of a thing that happens in these types of movies. And it gets I, old. It gets old, but I actually kind of liked this one. Why? Really? I don't know why. I thought, I thought it, it was terrible. I, I, I almost stopped paying attention immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I think... Um, uh, and then up. the war came. And, and then the dad. war came, and there was trouble and disaster, and Maybe we had to I fight back. Maybe that's what I don't like about Gary Sinise's voice. That's my dad. <laughs> I'm Gary Sinise. How else would he have the Lieutenant Dan Band? <laughs> There's a, I, I think why I liked it is there was a lot of story that they kind of visualized with it. Sure, but it's a it. massive info dump. It is a massive info dump, but I actually, I don't know. It just worked for me. I kind of like the scene when he, he, he breaks into the, that washroom and gets the doctor that works with his wife to help him cut the thing out. I kind of like that scene. That was a good tension building scene as he's trying to have it cut out as they're realizing that they've been duped by him putting the SIM card in uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's coat pocket. Right. I thought it was a pretty decent scene. It wasn't great, but in a movie, full of boring shit it stood out a little bit i liked it i don't know how you guys felt yeah yeah there were moments i mean i i think i if i'm being really honest i mean i i really enjoyed this movie when it came out um david you say that about everything now well but that's the thing is at the time in 2002 um, he was young and innocent and carefree and i was watching dude where's my car and stealing harvard right i you know I was already a dickhead when I when this movie came out, and I, you know, had high hopes and just really wanted to like it. And I liked sure. that it followed the story more so than at the time. But it was terrible. It's terrible. It's a terrible movie. Uh, yeah. Let's save it till the end, Larry. So, how would you guys compare what, this? To why? The- <laughs> how would you guys compare this to the short story? Oh yeah. Uh, it, it follows it pretty well. It's and I think pretty faithful. I, I think it's, uh, besides it being, like you say, Anthony, a little bit cheesy with all the, the extra stuff, at least they kept it realistic to what would be in that world, you know, and they didn't go off the deep end with some bizarre idea that, that changed the story too much. Yeah, and I, I, I think although the end, where when we get to the end, you know, we'll talk about that crap fest. Yeah, all of the propaganda in the movie, you know, the things that say "Know your enemy, unite, unity," blah blah blah, mm-hmm. all look like they had stolen them from Joel Schumacher's Batman. <laughs> they're they're so out of place in this movie's right. color that it just looks terrible. Yeah, there's so many bad choices. Visual choices, you're saying. Visual choices, yeah. Yeah. I I actually, see, I didn't mind how they told the story. I just, as far as, like, when I I envisioned the screenplay on the page, I think if I had read the screenplay, I think I probably would have been okay with it. I would have been like, yeah, let's do this movie. And then the problem was it it was all in execution and how it looked for me. It just looked. I have to point this out before I forget. Yeah. So just bear with me. When they finally, when they, well, when they first get to the hospital, Olam looks up and projected onto the ceiling is a giant wanted poster for himself that says wanted. And their fucking solution is to give him sunglasses. Right. Ridiculous. 
Yeah. Yeah, when he does his Corey Hart impersonation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And th- that looks makes you look more suspicious, yeah. 110% more suspicious to me that you're walking around the hospital in sunglasses in a hoodie and, and a hoodie. <laughs> yeah, no mind me. <laughs> yeah. You are begging to be followed by security at that point. Yeah. See, and all of this comes down to execution for me. I just I think that I think they you know, they had I think they we're trying to do the right thing as far as following the story, but I just think that, like, in the, in the execution. Right, and the execution is kind of lazy. I don't, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but when Olam escapes the interrogation and they're chasing him through the complex or whatever, he, he's standing, it's right as they're coming, they're coming down the elevator and the elevator opens, he's standing in front of barrels that just say, like, cellular samples. Oh, right. yes. Why do you keep that in a barrel? sitting around the hallway it doesn't gotta keep it somewhere your world building has to be (laughs) poignant right it has to make sense in your world you can't just put random stuff in places and expect the audience to accept it as your world especially when it stands out in such a confusing way right yeah it's, it's not well done no it's lazy art design well and i and i still will maintain that i i think the um the dvd 40 minute cut is is better superior yeah it looks you know there's less special effects too there's just it's just more on the, on the nose with the story but i will say too that i think the better adaptation of this story is the radio play but, Wait, but you yeah. know the radio play didn't have you guys Clarence Williams the third as a defense secretary which <laughs> i was true. he's in it for less than a minute or two i was really stoked um, that's kind of like, um, Bill Duke and, uh, Mandy. Yeah. 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 Not in it for long, but boy, he really makes his presence known. Oh. Cause he's Mac. Doesn't he always? And Predator. Yes. I yeah. mean. <laughs> Bill yeah. Duke's rat as fuck. Yeah. Uh, and he was in Commando as well. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Duke. On the Bill Duke podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we only play that long, tall, that was it, long, tall Sally song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, yeah, imposter. Do you have any other scenes that you from your notes that you yeah, you took a lot of notes? You should use these. Well, this I, I is agree. Why I watched when, it alone <laughs> when when we were watching it. Uh, David said something about the uh, not uh, who cares what who the target was, and that made perfect sense. What was the big deal about the chancellor? Who cares? Yeah, yeah. They kind of set that up at the beginning, and then it, it's like okay, because in the story, because padding. Yeah, because in the story, the U-bomb for for Spence was just to hurt humans. Right. Like, it didn't matter. And I think that that whole, like, giving him a target where, like, you know, I think they were trying to set up a ticking time bomb where, like... But then they abandoned that storyline exactly. altogether. Yeah. Well, they so, abandoned the Dead Zone storyline once he gets back to the hospital because right. no one cares. And I'm guessing that that whole time, that whole Chancellor bombing storyline, I'm actually guessing that came from the David Toohey version. That there was a version where he actually set up and paid off that storyline in a way that made sense, because it sounds like a David Toohey thing to have the ticking time bomb. But I think in this yeah. ver- version, they just, it's like they acknowledged that that was a part of it, but then just didn't see it through. So, you know. It just got lazy somewhere along the line. Someone just gave up. Yeah, so I'm guessing in one of those drafts of the screenplay, that was actually paid off. 
just not in the final one that they used. So, because there were several credited screenwriters in the story by, which usually means they did a draft of the script that didn't get used. Right. So. Sure. Yeah. Um, so back to what we were kind of originally talking about before we jumped backwards into my notes. What, um, compared to the story, do you guys think the movie does some things better, does things worse? Kind of. Um, I think it, it establishes the world better than yeah. it did in the story. It was, it was a little... Well, I understood that there was a war going on. I didn't really understand the moon part of it and how the little ship, the little shoot bug got to the moon. You know what's really funny about this movie? Or too? what they were doing, you know? Yeah. You know what's really funny, too, about this movie? You just made me think of this, Larry. Is if they had just tweaked it slightly, it could have taken place in the Starship Troopers universe. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. instead of Outspacers, it was the same, the bugs and the whole thing. And then yeah. Just, just, yeah. You you could have you could have done that, like, in the Starship Trooper-verse. <laughs> <laughs> the Heinlein-averse? <laughs> well, I like the Trooper-verse because I think that would be really kind of funny. So we can't talk about comparing the movie and the short story without talking the ending. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um... I don't boy necessarily... is the end of the movie terrible. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that it's better or worse. I kind of dug it until they they pull out that uh that alien sword. So for those of you that don't know or who've already seen the movie, they get to the crash site much like they do in the in the story and all very on, much like all on prize the the piece of crashed metal off the side of the ship and it turns out that it's Maya his wife is the one that they were originally targeting. And Vincent D'Onofrio and the soldiers swarm them, and they're like, no, we got it wrong, it's her, you gotta get down. They shoot the fuck out of her. Yeah. And then, you know, after, as Olam is kind of crying, he's upset because his robot wife has been shot, um, <laughs> they pull another piece of metal off the crash ship, and it turns out that Olam's in there too, so they're both robots, as yeah. opposed to the, just uh... being Olam. Uh, but that, uh, again, they abandoned their whole story that the bomb might go off because the aliens are much smarter than us. Sure. Blah, blah, but blah. But they abandoned that right at the moment when they show us that they basically ripped it out with a giant claw machine of this other guy's no, they, stomach. They said they had to do it that way because that otherwise the bomb would go off. I feel like the bomb's going to go off either way, and they just didn't think it through. I, I, so at so, the end, Vincent D'Onofrio is like, ah, oh, fuck it. I don't care. Hey, I don't think he Vincent D'Avrio says Vincent D'Avrio says, Oh fuck, and then they all blow up. Yeah. Which I'm gonna I'm gonna give this movie some credit. In a movie that's pretty cheesy and mostly stupid and full of padding, I kinda like that they went with that ending. The the original ending. With the original ending. With them yeah, getting blowed up. Yeah, I can yeah. respect that. I, 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 I have to give some respect to that. And then we cut back to Mackay Pfeiffer, like anyone gives a fuck what's going on here. And movie over. Right. Well, and I'll tell you what. He did we, heal his people. I don't care. When we get into what what we would do differently, I feel like this is the same thing because I think the ending I I, I like the idea that there's that there's an added twist that the wife <laughs> was also replaced by the outspacers. Sure. But why not? But I think that that could have been established earlier. And I think it would have been more interesting if when Olam's on the run, he gets some kind of indication that 
something that it's not just him maybe it's not just him yeah or that maybe his wife is involved and then he gets he, that he s- suspects that there's some kind of suspicion on her beforehand well, yeah the yeah. movie lacks any of that paranoia that you would yeah. have in that kind of situation there, there's no subtle foreshadowing of that it, it's 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 surprising but it's kind of unearned yeah the it's movie doesn't earn it's, it's right definitely to, to, unearned. to have that twist if, um, if the movie had what hit, it was the butler the whole time. <laughs> well, if the movie had had like ins- if you were going to pad it out instead of doing like this whole dead zone thing, but if you had done that, Olam fights his way to get to the hospital to get to his wife. First of all, I wouldn't make him a ninja, right? Yeah, everybody in this movie <laughs> knows karate, and he gets there, and then. Once he thinks he's safe, like, I'm to my wife, I'm safe. If he then... Did you just jump to the how would, what would we do differently segment? I did. Yeah, dude, park it. Parking <laughs> lot it, okay? Just put it in park and hold on. <laughs> well, I gotta finish my thought. If, if if he shows up to the hospital and she, and he suspects that she, his safety is now gone because she is of you know, from the outspacers, then it Why can't you say she's a robot? Robot. Robot. Because she isn't necessarily... Well, like, if you're going to get totally wacky with it, like, maybe she's... Maybe he's a robot, but she's some kind of genetic outspacer thing. I don't know. You could do all kinds of crazy weird things. Yeah, basically, I think what the the gist of what David's saying is that there's so much you could do with it that the movie neglects to do and then tries to make you want to care about this twist, which is totally unearned. Yeah. Which brings me to my next thing. <laughs> totally and pointless. Would Dick like this movie? No. Um, I think he'd like the 40-minute version, but I don't think he'd like... I think he'd like that it was kind of faithful, yeah, but then have a bunch of other problems with I think he would have a huge on. problem with the end. Yeah. I have a huge problem with the end. The yeah. fact that we killed Nelson 25 minutes into the movie, and I don't get to see this friendship end I and be sad. I think... What Dick would think about that's this. really central to you, isn't it? That uh, in the story and in the movie was that friendship. Yeah, it's important. Here's here's exactly how I think Dick would react to this movie. Exactly, he would try to keep a positive. He would try to be positive, spinning on it to but, keep that money coming in. But if they got people. <laughs> if people got him messed up enough, like they do in some of the interviews, where he gets right. a little wackier towards the end of interviews. I think he would probably let loose, just like when he like accidentally ta- said how much he didn't like Ursula Le Guin, like <laughs> story. I, uh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, there's one interview where he kind of starts like he starts going off about like how like one of her novels isn't as good as people think it is. Was it the left hand? No, 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 no. Wait, no, it wasn't. No, I got this totally wrong. It was Chip Delaney. He totally talks shit on Chip Delaney's Dahlgren, which is a great novel. Mm. And he's like, basically, he's like, ah, that novel kind of sucks. <laughs> and like, he starts going off about it. And I was like, whoa, PKD, kind of talking shit on your boat, you know, on your bro, Sam Delaney. And I think I thought it was Chip Delaney. Uh, Samuel Chip. Sam Delaney. Chip. All right, Chip's a nickname. Anyways, <coughs> my point is, is that I think fucking cough it on me, dog. <coughs> Excuse me. Great. My point is, is that I think... Now you're going to get the hiv. Welcome back to the Bronchitis Ward podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, my point is, is that I think PKD would try to stay positive about Imposter, but he would let it rip, eventually. Yeah. Okay. Like, the things that he, I don't think he would like the end. I can yeah. get behind that. That's exactly how he would react to it, I think. 
And now for the totally self-indulgent part of the podcast where we briefly talk about how I would make this better. How, oh, yeah? how would we make that? Well, I already said how I would make it better, but... I would personally condense it down. I mean, look, I, I would build up their friendship, obviously, mm-hmm. but... I don't really know if I would want a, f- a feature film of this. I'm kind of cool with it just being a, a short story and moving on. I, I, I yeah, but that's not the, that's, that's not, the, not the exercise. The exercise is you're getting. Uh, so let me get this straight. Larry, Larry, in several pe- previous episodes, goes, "Eh, I don't know," and we give him a pass. I, I don't have anything for this, and I get shit for it. Oh, you're fucking not saying hip- what a couple of fucking hypocrites. Whoa, slow it, slow your roll there. Kid. No, I'm not gonna slow my roll. <laughs> You saw you I saw say, your fucking role. Oh my god! The uh, uh, not saying that, uh, saying the, the exercise is if you were going to make it a better movie, how would you do that? Yeah, I think I would. And saying I wouldn't make it a movie is not the uh, not the it's answer. Not the game. It's not oh. the exercise. Oh, it's it's like you know, like literally what I just said when Larry doesn't have to contribute, but I do. Got it. Uh, anyways, well, okay. So if you're well, not gonna, Dad likes me best. <laughs> if you don't, that's true. If you're not gonna <laughs> fix that, okay. So if I'm not gonna fix it, okay. So why don't we do this? We cut all the padding away. We remove that entire B plot with the the resistance, mm-hmm. right? And I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, that's a fine answer. Um. Well, but the. The exercise is you have to make it into a movie. So, and and for that, I do think I do think getting rid of that whole dead zone storyline, um, I I would take that out too. I would take that out too, and I would go with the storyline introduced by the twist at the end with the wife, but do that earlier and have that be your B story, where Spencer Olam's like whole like his safety going to his wife. You know, like that whole scene where he's like talking to her on the whatever vid phone and he says, you know, if you ever cared about me, like you need to help me, you need to meet me in the woods. All I ask is this one thing. Because movie. And I I would change that and put that earlier and instead of the whole like introduction of another character, have it all centered around the wife and the friend, Tony Shalhoub, I'd have him live longer and have the two of them try to rescue Spence. But then have the wife be um, an outspacer at plant. As well. I would have the hallucinogenic drugs work against Vincent D'Onofrio's goal, and to have that kind of trigger the memories for Robot Gary Sinise, and which is what then, well, le- which is what then leads him to figuring out that his wife is also a robot, or right. at least might be something more than she seems to, and we could at least kind of get him to go down that track a little bit to then connect to what you're saying. Yeah. And I think it should be more psychological, like how Spence fights back against Vincent D'Onofrio's character. Yeah, this is a, yeah. shouldn't have been an action movie. I agree. This this has vague remnants of to- like Total Recall to yeah. it. Yeah. And Total Recall is a much better movie. The yeah. one with Arnold. Not but see, shit we've, one we've with talked Colin about Carroll. this in the past, and the, uh, the I think film filmmakers are starting to get a better idea of what pkd was doing in his writing and so they're sort of getting away from all this it's got to be an action movie it's got to be an arnold movie you know that kind of yeah that kind of thing and they're getting back to telling his stories like they should be told yeah so i think we fixed it uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think we could have two fixed out it. of the three of us fixed it yeah. no I, fixing I don't know what larry contributed to but it's cool. well i don't get asked 
I mean, at least you get asked. I just get ignored over here. I asked. I said both of you. Yeah, he did. That's not how you ask a question to someone, David. Larry, how would you fix it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> First of all, I would scrap this entire version. There would The wife would not be a fucking robot. Uh, I would stick more to a psychological thing instead of an action thing. And it would be all about, like Anthony said, the friendship, you know, the relationship with the wife. All the these things coming down on this character instead of, I use karate to solve my problems. So it would be the, the story just done psychologically. Yeah. Would they, would, so it would have more of a thriller bent to it. Yeah, definitely. more, Much more a thriller than an action movie. No karate. No karate. No one does karate yeah, in the whole movie. Those scenes seem weird to me. Especially when him and Mackay Pfeiffer are in the sewer and uh-huh. the three dudes with them basically turn on them and they throw down. It's just the scene, most of the action scenes seem wildly misplaced. Yeah. It, they don't need to be there at all. Yeah. No, no, but when they, you know, that's all they had for, they hear PKD and they go, oh, it's got to be an action movie. But I think that that has a lot to do with, as you were kind of saying earlier, most of the peak, early PKD films are kind of action adaptations. Mm-hmm. So I think into the 2000s, people were associating less with the source material, Dick's source material, and pulling more from the adapted works. Yeah. Yeah. Well... And you know what's really funny, and, and I say this... Every is, time David says, well, I'm waiting for him to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I absolutely agree with you. I'm not. But what what's funny is is I, I, I'm admitting that with with uh, the novel that I co-wrote with Ed Morris, Flush Trade... Um, Sameless, shameless self-promotion from David. Sure. But you, you, let me make my fucking point here now. <laughs> so, well, I would if you'd ever get to it. Well, you're fucking stopping me. So here, the the point is, is that um, Flush Trade was actually in a lot Welcome of ways. Welcome to the anger cast. <laughs> Flush Trade, <laughs> Flush Trade, in a lot of ways, is more influenced by that the notion of the PKD action film than it is actual PKD. Yeah, but it. I we wanted to make something that had the structure, the tone, and the action of a pkd movie but had the kind of what the fuck of a pkd novel and that was kind of what we were trying to go for so i actually acknowledge that the whole pkd action thing well not actually a a real philip k dick thing is a thing that i like as well like i like the whole idea of the paranoid action story set in science fiction. Right. Sure. Well, admitting that it is less actual PKD is more of a Hollywood version of PKD. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. What the fuck does that have to do with what I was talking about? Well, what I'm (laughs) saying... No, it has a lot to do with it. I'm agreeing with you that that in this era, the attempts to do PKD... PKD. (laughs) PKD. The attempts to do Philip K. Dick on film were action stories. Right. And that Because that, their only experience are movies adapted from Dick's work. Right. Mm-hmm. However, and I would say that Blade Runner, which started it all, was not was more PKD in tone and less action movie. I would agree with that. However, yeah, that's why there was this, that huge gap in between movies though, right? Yeah, and I think it was Total Recall that made 
uh, spawned K- the action business. Yeah, and it's what made Philip K. Dick bankable. Um, so, are how, we good? How, how many? many? <laughs> how many what? Oh, no, you pick. You go first. I will go, I will go first. I'm going to give this movie two Tony Shaloubs. <laughs> <laughs> Out of how many? Five? Five. All right. Um, I'm going to give this 2.5 Madeline Stowe's out of five. I'm going to give it two Clarence Williams <laughs> third out of five because I actually enjoyed this more than Minority Report. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if I could say that same thing. Well, I don't know. I probably like them about the same. Yeah, but this had Clarence Williams the third and Minority Report. Well, the, but the name. Yeah, but Minority Report. You know I don't remember what my rating for Minority Report was, but it, it was, was that good. Clarence Williams the third. I this this was just this movie has no business being almost two fucking hours. Right. No. No. Forty minute version all day. Yeah, forty minute version all day. Yep. And that wraps up this episode. So, uh, we got anything Um, left? Our next book is... Dr. Futurity. The future is here. The technocrats have seized control and made America a paradise, free of disease and poverty. Dr. Jim Parsons is driving down Highway 101 when he is hurled into another unimaginable future where life and death have traded places. Philip K. Dix. Dr. Futurity, as Ursula K. Le Guin calls it, an elusive and incomparable artist, our own homegrown Borges, which I realize is not about Dr. Futurity, <laughs> it's just about but it. about PKD. <laughs> right. But fuck it, it was there, so I read it. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm really excited for Dr. Futurity. Well, yeah. I am too. All right. Um, so until next time, keep paranoid. <laughs> Stay paranoid. Be paranoid. Thank you.